Welcome to Hevray Connect. I'm Zach Garber, your host and a current Hevray member. In this podcast, you will get the opportunity to learn about the incredible Cabinet Young Leadership Program. We will explore the stories of fellow Cabinet members, alumni of the program, and educational series about the Jewish Federations. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, family, and local Jewish Federation. Enjoy. Just to be I would give the advice to live in the moment, to try to take yourself outside of your body at different periods during a retreat and observe yourself and your fellow cabinet members and watch what's going on from afar, have an out-of-body experience, the interaction, take advantage of the learning opportunities because they can help you in real life. Today, I'm very excited to have another episode of Hevre Connect. Today's episode, I was uh, introduced from a current cabinet Hevre member who was actually my caucus, Mark Pine. He introduced me to Elliot Rosen, who is part of the Philadelphia community, and he is a cabinet alum. Currently, he is a uh, funeral director in Philadelphia, and I'm so excited to learn about his story, his experience in cabinet before we were in cabinet, and what his journey has looked like and continues to look like since then. So I think a great starting point, Elliot, would be just to learn a little bit about yourself, your background, and excited to jump into your experience. Thanks for having me, Zach. Uh, I'm not of the age that knows all about podcasts, so it's an interesting experience. I'm 82 years old, and I got on cabinet by accident. I was asked at a shiva home uh, why I was never on cabinet. And I said, no one ever asked me. They said, well, how old are you? I said, I'm 38 years old. And they said, why didn't someone ask you to be on cabinet? I said, I guess they thought I was over 40 because I've achieved so many things in leadership positions in the community. And they said, you're right. Everyone told me here tonight that you were over 40 and that's why you were never on cabinet. And here I find out that you're 38. So the next day I got a phone call and they said, we want to meet with you. We want you to go on cabinet. And I was right at the cusp in Philadelphia of a tremendous rejuvenation with cabinet. As a matter of fact, uh, out of our cabinet cadre, we had a national young leadership cabinet leader for men's cabinet. In those days, men's and women's cabinet was, was separate. So I was on cabinet until I was 40 and they wanted me to stay on. I said, no, the rules are that you stay on until you're 40 or you finish four years unless you are a chair or an office, national office in cabinet. And I got off so that some people who had been on our cabinet and should have gotten off voluntarily would see the uh, light of the issue and got off along with me to make room for more people. Because at the time, we already had maybe 15 people from Philadelphia's Federation on cabinet. So that's how I got on cabinet. And... Uh, I can tell you that my first impression at the first retreat, which was at the Harrison Conference Center outside of Chicago, was I really don't belong here. 
Um, I'm far advanced in my leadership roles in the community, having been past president of some organizations and having been involved in the Federation leadership since the late 60s, and here it's 1979. So uh, a lot of what was being done, I'd already been through and had experience with, and I just didn't know if I belonged until we got into the programming and I got to see some other people who observed Judaism as traditionally as I did and some people who felt Israel the way I felt Israel and felt that you could really change the Jewish world through activism. And it started rubbing off on me. So my first cabinet experience turned out to be eye-opening and probably as impactful a retreat as anyone could experience. And that's my introduction to cabinet. So it's so funny you say that. We've had a couple different people on the podcast who mentioned that they went to retreat and initially at retreat, and some people even after their first retreat didn't think this was something for them. But over the course of their cabinet experience, they found something so impactful in the experience that it shaped their journey and they ended up becoming really involved. So I, I think it would be helpful if maybe you could share a little bit more about what what were the, some of the things that you learned, how cabinet played a role in what you did, because you mentioned that initially you didn't think it was going to be for you and then it ended up being one of these really pivotal moments in your life. Well, number one, I knew many of my chevre from Philadelphia. Uh, many of them I had been m role modeling for uh, over a couple of years in some of the organizations that were part of the Philadelphia Jewish community. And they looked up to me kind of as a role model. And then I started seeing other people from around the country that had the same kind of impact on others that evidently I had on my local community. And in sitting in some of the sessions at Cabinet, I realized I was not on an island by myself. And once you realize that there are other people on the same island with the same resources and making best use of those resources, I realized how I fit in. And I started taking advantage of the opportunities to get to know people and to help learn how to lead better uh, than I had done before. And because of that, I became used by UJA all over the East Coast to do all kinds of things whether it was mission recruitment, leadership development, Jewish identity, um, a myriad of programs. I was used to be a speaker, to be a trainer, to do sweet solicitation, uh, to train solicitor training, you name it. In those days, it was UJA's responsibility to do that. And long before there was a merger between CJF and UJA, which is now the Jewish Federations in North America. And I guess my talents started to be used uh, on more of a national basis. And that 
was very rewarding for me to see that I guess talents that I had were able to be taken advantage of and used in other communities than just Philadelphia. And the local community, uh, really, Chef Nachas uh, gained a lot of uh, thrills out of the fact that a local person was being used on a national basis, as other Philadelphians were starting to be used on a national basis. So all of those things blended in together to make me a better Jewish leader and to make other Jewish leaders better Jewish leaders. So, Elliot, it would be helpful just to learn a little bit more about yourself outside of just cabinet. You mentioned that by 38, you were a leader in the local community. I know before we started the podcast, you said that you had a, a business transition later in life. You know, part of the idea behind this podcast is to learn from some of the leaders in the Jewish communities, their stories, how they've evolved as leaders, and some of the things that they've done so that we can take some insights from their stories. Well, I grew up in a fairly uh, observant cultural Jewish home. We had a kosher home. My father was not religious, but he was strongly Jewish. My grandmother, my Zayda and Bubba lived with us. My Zayda died in 1948. My Bubba died in 1960. Uh, they were Yiddish speakers. My Bubba davened every day. Um, and I went to shul every Saturday to junior congregation. And when I was 12 years old, I was placed in the class for kids in Hebrew school who had been problematic in regular classes. So I was put in a bad kids class. And the teacher of that class was Dr. Samuel Sussman, who had created our congregation, Harzion Temple, before it was a congregation. He was hired to be the teacher of the Jewish kids living in this new community in the Western side of Philadelphia near the sub city line near the suburbs. And before Harzion Temple was a synagogue, it was a school for the kids in the neighborhood. And he was the teacher and then became the principal of the school of Harzion. And he changed my life. And I can't explain to you how he changed my life. All I know is I made the decision then that I wanted to do things even more Jewish than I had done. And I continued studying with him we, on a weekly basis, uh, even while I was still in college, although by that time we stopped studying Talmud and I was studying mostly current events with him that had Jewish impact. And um, he was so important in my life that my son is named after him. And from that point in my life, I decided I wanted to dedicate myself to making the Jewish world a better place. I went to a Jewish overnight camp. I met my wife at that camp. I made my first charitable contribution of major impact, my first paycheck at that camp uh, to the rec hall building fund to build a, a rec hall that we did not have. I wound up becoming the athletic director at that camp at the age of 19 or 20. I continued to donate my salary uh, and my tips when they still had tips. Now they don't back to the camp, and I fell in love with camping. So my father was a very active um, leader in the Jewish community in certain causes. He was philanthropic to the most extent that he could be. We were distributors of phonograph records, music machines, 
amusement machines, pinball machines, shuffle alleys, et cetera, and vending. And we were distributors and operators of those machines. Only in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, a lot of things got very difficult. We went through difficult times. And by the late 70s and early 80s came along, the interest rates were such that you couldn't function, you couldn't make that kind of money and pay the interest at 22 and 24%. And I kept the business going until my father died in 1982. And when he died, I was going to make a transition in my life and I was hired by UJA to be a national campaign director. I would be the first of five hired in the United States to cover major communities. And I was going to be initially responsible for Providence, Hartford, North Jersey, Metro West, and Bergen County. And that job got put on hold because Irving Bernstein retired from UJA as the head, and Stanley Horowitz from Ohio was hired as the new exec. And he put these national campaign consultants on hold. And I was offered a job, but I'd have to work out in New York. And Joe Levine, who was on cabinet with us and was a funeral director and was a lifelong friend, uh, approached me when he knew I was liquidating the business to think about joining him. And it took about seven months till he finally convinced me I could always become a professional in the Jewish world, but I should try out working for him, that I would know right away if being a funeral director was right for me, and he would know right away if I was right for the industry, for the profession. And that was January of 1984. And here I am, still a funeral director at Joseph Levine & Sons. So that's how I made my transition. My father was so involved with Israel that in the 1947-1948 period, he was one of those people who helped ship illegal arms, rifles, ammunition to Israel. And uh, that's a whole story that would take a long, long time. But if you want to know some of the story, go on the internet and look up Frank Sinatra delivering money for Teddy Kollek. And you can read the whole story about how money was collected, how it was delivered in cash, and how it helped send arms over for fighting in the War of Independence. And my father took pinball machines and took the parts out of the pinball machines, packed them separately, and then took the weapons and put them in the body of the pinball machine, and then crated that up and shipped them over to, in those days it was Palestine, and sent the arms over. A guy by the name of Zimmel Resnick, and you can find about his story in the book, The Pledge. Zimmel Resnick was a uh, operator of an amusement pier in Asbury Park. And as part of the amusement pier, he had a rifle gallery. And he would take those rifles that shot BBs and he would get them converted over so they could sh use real live bullets. And he was a client, a customer of David Rosen Incorporated. 
uh, buying pinball machines and amusement machines for the uh, arcade on the pier. And that's a little bit how my father got involved in the War of Independence. So I grew up in a home that understood commitment to Jewish people and the Jewish causes. I grew up in a home where men in black suits with beards and black satchels and a little book with addresses and phone numbers would come to the door knocking on the door to collect a couple of dollars for their yeshiva or their charity. I saw my bubba all the time with cash that my mother or father would give to her and these guys would knock on the door and she had a couple of dollars to give to them. So observing all of that in the house and seeing a blue box where money went in every Friday kind of teaches you that there's things you need to do to help the rest of the Jewish world. So that's, that's how I grew up. Well, I would love to learn, you know, uh, one of the things that's so impressive about your story and your life, we were talking about this even before the podcast, is having a lifelong commitment to the Jewish community and still being present and involved today at 82. I'm just curious you know, we all go through different phases where we connect with the Jewish community, with the world, with the people around us, our personal communities in different phases throughout our life. What, how is it that you remained active, involved, and kind of what did that ebb and flow look like, you know, to where you're involved still at this point today? God's given me energy and passion. And as long as I have the energy and the passion, I don't let burnout hit me. Uh, there are times I get down on things, you know, times change. But when I was 21, I knew my father was a Mason. I asked him if I should join the lodge. He gave me a petition and I joined the Masons and I was still single at the time. So I got involved with Masonry and I was the youngest master our lodge ever had um, in 1972. But because of that, there was an organization that you had to be a Mason to join and get involved in. It no longer requires Masonry. It's called the Golden Slipper Club. At that time, it was the Golden Slipper Square Club. And my father was a member of that. Uh, he was also the chief barker, the president of the Variety Club of the Delaware Valley. Uh, but I got involved in Golden Slipper and I gravitated to the camp because I love camping. So I joined the club in 1966, and I was already the assistant to the president of the camp in 1968, and I was the youngest president the camp ever had in 1975. Um, so I, then I became president of the Golden Slipper Club, and this was a feeder organization to feed leadership to the Federation. So because I went from step to step to step, and I developed the passion for what I was doing, and I feed off the passion, which gives me energy, and God's been good to me. I'm a young 82. I'm still vibrant and vital, and my mind still works, and I'm still creating ideas. I love to do things in the background. I did not have to be a leader, a president, or a vice president to be involved, and I like being in the background frequently a lot of what I've created, I let other people take the credit for because they can see something through, even though I'm the guy pushing in the background, but I don't mind them getting all the credit. And I just can't answer why I still have the passion and why I still have the energy. 
I can only say that I came from God and that he, God has not abandoned me. So you talked about having ideas, being vibrant, still being involved. You know, over over the years, things change. What is it that you, as it relates to the Jewish world today, that you're focused on, passionate about, trying to be involved in making a difference? The fact that a lot of people don't want to volunteer anymore. The fact that people don't answer their phone. The fact that they don't even answer texts that quickly anymore. Um, I don't know how to get people motivated. I can tell you the best solicitation I ever did had nothing to do with money, but it had to do with cabinet. I was leading a national mission and on the mission was a professional from Allentown. And I don't think they would mind me using their names because I've told the story publicly before. Ivan Schoenfeld was the professional running the Lehigh Valley Federation. And he came up to me on the plane and he says, Elliot, besides solicitation, I have one favor to ask of you. We have a young leader on this mission with his wife who doesn't know how wonderful he is as a leader and as a person. And I think he'd learn and get a great deal out of being on Young Leadership Cabinet besides soliciting him for his gift, I'd like to see if you can get him to agree to be on cabinet. So one day down at the Dead Sea, after they'd had a chance to have the fun in the Dead Sea and they were sitting around having lunch, I asked if I could meet with them to talk. And I said, I don't want to solicit you for your pledge. You're going to know what you're going to do. You give a capability gift. Um, and that's not what your community has asked me to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about Young Leadership Cabinet. Now, this is probably 1985 or 1986, somewhere in that time. I'm already long off cabinet. The person I'm speaking to is Ross Bourne. Uh, whose family is just born candies in uh, the Lehigh Valley. And they make the Mike and Ikes and Goldenberg peanut chews and hot tamales and all kinds of candies. And they make the peeps the, for the Easter holiday, but they are kosher marshmallows. All his candy products are kosher. And I solicited them to go in Young Leadership Cabinet. And he agreed. And he tells me every time he sees me that cabinet changed his life. For me, the ripples of a solicitation has gone into generations because here he'd never wanted to take major leadership roles. He and his wife, president of the JCC, president of the uh, Federation of Lehigh Valley, uh, very involved with ADL, you name it. That's where this family has been. And, um, he thanks me every time for asking him to have gone on young, young Leadership Cabinet. For someone who's listening to this podcast, they're either in Cabinet, they're considering going on Cabinet, or they recently finished Cabinet. What pieces of advice, recommendations would you have in order to both make the, both, the most out of the, 
the experience and also have the most exponential scalable impact with the opportunity of being part of such an incredible experience and journey? Well, I can't speak about today because I never experienced the cabinet retreat with men and women together. But I would give the advice to live in the moment, to try to take yourself outside of your body at different periods during a retreat and observe yourself and your fellow cabinet members and watch what's going on from afar, have an out-of-body experience, the interaction, take advantage of the learning opportunities because they can help you in real life. There are skills that you learn as a solicitor that are phenomenal if you're in any kind of selling position because if you're in sales, the things you can learn as a solicitor will make you a better salesperson. The things you learn to do in running a caucus, leading a caucus, uh, leading a training session, um, doing Jewish identity programming can only enhance you in your general day-to-day living, both as a human being and as a Jew. And make sure when you go home from your first cabinet experience, did you realize your family has not shared it with you and you're going to come home different. So be prepared to share with them in bits and pieces, not all at once because you'll overwhelm them if you hit them with everything at one time and let it just ease out the experience that you had, the relationship you would have, um, Some of it would be similar, I guess, to people who really get involved with their fraternity and sorority. And when they come back home to friends that they had but have not experienced this with them, you're in a different atmosphere. You're in a different realm. So you have to understand that they haven't shared that with you. So you have to be careful the way you share it with them. Those are bits and pieces that I picked up over the years from the cabinet experience. One of our favorite questions to ask is just what are some of the Jewish traditions, customs that you either follow or maybe that are just personal to you and your family that you find most meaningful? The different things we do at Passover Seder, the fact that we build a sukkah every year and have different people over. Um, I don't have a lot of my family living in the area. I do have a a son and daughter-in-law and to my two youngest grandchildren who are now 11 and 15 living in the area, but the rest of my family is, uh, is out of the area. Um, we created when I was on cabinet over a three year period packet for every Shabbat that different rabbis talked about the portion that there were arts and crafts projects that were included. There were songs that were included and there were fables or stories that were included. And they covered all of the parashiot and all of the chagim and even the minor holidays. And I don't know if it was ever published in the book because there were all kinds of copyright things that they were involved with. Naomi Pates, 
who was the wife of Rabbi Norman Pates. She was the editor, the creator of it, Larry Rubenstein. Rabbi Larry Rubenstein was the executive, the director of Young Leadership Cabinet in those days. So every Friday night, when my kids were young, we did one of the, the weekly portion for that week, and I would read the fable or tell the fable that was at the end of the book. And it was quite, quite impactful for our kids to hear those stories. Some of them they'd want to hear over and over again. And um, it led to being more creative in things. And our satyrs are really unique and creative with all kinds of things that we do from year to year. And um, it changes. It's never all the same. We have families that drive three hours to come to Seder and then drive home the three hours. As far as this uh, being in the sukkah, um, having eight or ten people every night over to your home and eating in the sukkah unless it's raining um, becomes a really unique experience. And I've had some very special people in our home for uh, a meal in our sukkah, including the principal of the school in Whitwell, Tennessee, who created the Paperclips Project and the award-winning documentary. And in 2006, just shortly after Paperclips became a known project out of Tennessee, uh, she had sukkah's dinner in my home. Um, and uh, we stayed close and in touch. And our synagogue um, has created a relationship with that community. And we send a contingent once a year to Whitwell, Tennessee, both students and adults. And this year is uh, one of the every few years we bring the students from Whitwell to Harzion. And we open it up for the whole community to meet with these kids. And it's now been going on. Oh, it's, I guess, about 20 years that um, the paper, paper Clips project has been around. We'll, we'll have to take a look and see if we can find that cabinet book with all the fables and everything, but what well, an they incredible... Well, they send out a packet every week or every two weeks. It was, it was a two-year project. So, and then the third year, they wound up doing the special Shabbatot and the special readings. So it, it was some parts of three years that it took for it all to come. Amazing. Well, before we wrap up the podcast, I always like to end on a, a high note off of what was already a high note in the last answer. W what gives you optimism for the Jewish community? You've you've been through a lot over different times. We've seen lots of issues that stay uh, prevalent. Uh, they evolve. They change. But what is it that keeps you optimistic and engaged and excited about the future? Number one, that my oldest grandchild, who will be 29 in September, decided he wanted to be a Jewish educator. And he was in Jacksonville and Houston at the Jewish day schools there and has just been able to get back to the East Coast. And he started two weeks ago at the uh, Solomon Schechter Day School of Bergen County. So that gives me optimism that into another generation in my family, being Jewish is important and being Jewishly educated is important. And that his sister, 
who's a labor and delivery nurse living in New York who just got engaged, and she's 27, that she's taking a, a week vacation of her time because she's been away from Israel for too many years and is going to Israel for a week uh, just because it's been too long since she's been in Israel. And that my youngest grandchild, who's 11, if we take every one of our grandchildren on their own uh, bar bat mitzvah trip after their bar bat mitzvah, her first choice of where she wants to go is to Israel, because she was there with us a few years ago with her family. And her brother, who's 15, says, Bela, that's too easy. You're going to get to go to Israel many times with Bubby and Zeta. Pick a place that you wouldn't, wouldn't get to go so easily because you're always going to be going to Israel because you know how frequently Bubby and Zeta go to Israel. So that makes me optimistic that my grandchildren understand being Jewish and Israel and how it's all interconnected. Well, I think we we all can aspire and hope to leave such incredible legacies, live such involved and enthused life, and hope to have multiple generations in our lifetime who are still engaged and share and pass along our values. So, Elliot, I know I could speak with you all night, but really appreciate you taking the time to share your story and come on the podcast. And as always, I hope that people enjoyed this story, feel inspired, engaged, and also understand how cabinet is potentially such a pivotal opportunity for us to take advantage of in our leadership journeys. Well, thank you. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate the opportunity. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, my email address is my name, E-L-L-I-O-T-R-O-S-E-N at hotmail.com. Amazing. Well, I hope people get in touch with Elliot. He's been nothing but a a wealth of knowledge and uh, is hopefully an inspiration to us all. Thank you. Through the zooms and the frozen time, leaders step up to change lives. Committed to helping others out. We hear the call and we respond in our hometowns and beyond. The Jewish future is.